I think it is really hard to be creative, inspiring, groundbreaking if you are in survival mode. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and that plus writer means I need to work out, I need to eat well, I need to like clear my head, I need to walk, I need to see girlfriends, I need a coach. There's so much that you gotta do to be able to like show up on Monday and actually lead a team. This is In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lines. And I'm Suchi Srinivasan. Each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. This episode, we're speaking with May Habib, co-founder and CEO of Writer, a full-stack generative AI platform for enterprises. Founded in 2020, Writer uses NLP, or natural language processing, to help organizations align their brands across all areas of their business. May has been a CEO for over a decade and is refreshingly transparent about the challenges she faced on her journey and generous with the advice she gives. Here's Suchi's conversation with May. My name is May Habib. I am the co-founder and CEO of Writer. We are a generative AI platform for the enterprise, so it's a horizontal platform that gives companies uh, their own large language model and then also the ability to build their own applications on top of that model all in a secure environment. I uh, have had a long career in tech, first as a technology-focused analyst in investment banking um, and as an investor at a sovereign wealth fund. Uh, Then I started a machine translation company and uh, now writer. And in terms of where I'm from, Suchi, that is like a question I can answer a lot of different ways. I am Lebanese, I was born and raised there, then I moved to Canada, then I did university in the US, worked in the US a bit, then moved to Abu Dhabi, then moved to Dubai, then moved to San Francisco, then married a Lebanese Nigerian British man, and now we split our time between London and San Francisco. <laughs> I love that. A true <laughs> a true global citizen, if you will, right? Let's peel back a little bit and go back to some of your early years, your formative years. So talk to us a little bit about a couple of things. You know, what were some of those early formative experiences that got you started into this career of, it sounds like a great deal of exploration, entrepreneurship, uh, you know, how did you get started? What were some formative experiences? And also talk to us and as you reflect on that about some people who may have had pivotal roles in the twists and turns of your saga. If I think about, you know, the formative, like, 5 to 15, that decade, I think my dad and my second grade teacher, and I've I've literally never thought about this until you asked me, Suchi, but if I think about who during that period was I like, whoa, we were, you know, very typical immigrant family, like nobody spoke English, a lot of kids, lived with my aunt and uncle, went to kind of a lower income school, and the second grade teacher, Mrs. Bernardin, she had a really profound impact on my life. Held my hand at every recess, like gave me books to read for my reading level, like really went at my pace, you know? And I felt like I was the only student in that class, honestly, that whole year. And then, you know, at the same time, I was watching my dad navigate, you know, this new country and 
He's an entrepreneur too. And during that, those early years, I had put literally like a CNC machine. And he, I mean, he literally swept the floor at a tool and die shop and um, secondhand bought this machine, put it in our garage and started doing like odd CNC jobs oh, wow. on the side. Wow. Yeah. And so both he and my mom worked, you know, two to three jobs, barely saw them. And he would come home from his day job and go do that. My mom would come home from the bakery, go to another job. Those were just very formative experiences. I mean, I work every waking minute, Monday to Friday, still now, because that is what I saw the people in my life do, literally. So if you now come back a little bit more to your more recent past, if you will, and reflecting on the last decade, now you've actually been a CEO for the last 10 years of your life. <laughs> and, you know, oh my gosh, that is that is actually a heavy mantle on your head, a lot of responsibility. So I'm curious about when did you decide that you wanted to be a leader? And in those 10 years, what has surprised you? Bust some myths for us here yeah. on, uh, you know, CEO ship, so to say. <laughs> I've always known I was going to build a company. Like, from the very early years. It was just a question of what was the idea that I was going to dedicate my life to. And so at Lehman, at my second job and my first company, the goal has always been very single-minded, build something enormous that outlasts me, that has a positive impact on the world. But being CEO has meant very different things over the course of a decade. And I would say it's only recently meant the things that we think it means. A person with very high leverage, a senior executive team, all of the um, management principles that we read about as leaders, etc. For the first few years of my first company's life and then the first year and change of writer's life, like CEO meant like chief shoveler. And... <laughs> Honestly. I like how, yes, we should call it what it is, right? We could yeah. ask you to bust some myths out here. <laughs> like, what were the hardest, most thorniest problems? That's where I belonged. Now, it means something really different. It really means inspiring and building a team that around me, that together is attacking the hairiest, most complex problems. And, and that was an unlock for me, going from knowing every tiny detail of the business and driving us to outcomes to still knowing every tiny detail of the business, but really relying and depending and trusting a team of leaders and ICs. Everyone at Writer is a leader, truly. I don't believe in middle management, but my role only really recently has become what we traditionally think about as CEO. I'm going to focus on one thing that you just said out here and just pull on this thread a bit because I think it's relevant to a large portion of our audience as well that's seeking to make that jump from IC to senior leadership and grow in their career, which is you talked about being in the details, also executing on many things. So basically that also means control though, right? You only have yourself to blame when something goes wrong because you executed it, you planned it to this place of leadership where you're relying and trusting on others to be able to drive to outcomes, uh, of course, all collaboratively. But that shift is not always as easy as it sounds to be because letting go is actually harder than it sounds. And I'd love to hear sort of your take on, was there a moment and unlock that allowed you to practically make that shift? It's definitely a collection of moments that, First are about perhaps why am I not getting 
what I need from somebody or a function. We're all about conscious leadership here at, at Writer. If you haven't read Principles of Conscious Leadership, please just have that be the first thing you do. It was a huge unlock for me and my co-founder. And for me, it was, wait a minute, it's obviously something I am doing, <laughs> not them. What is it that I am doing? And there is a, uh, a girlfriend of mine, hyper successful, one of the most impressive women leaders that I know, started her own company and self-made everything. And I remember taking a walk with her and asking her how she managed her executives. And there was an unlock for me. She said two things. She said she wasted five years only trying to hire executives like her. For her to be able to, and, and there were some executives, right, that she felt were off the charts, and it was because they're her exact style, talked to her speed, worked at her speed, thought the same way she did. And she was trying to get everybody and all the various executive positions to be that person, and it was just not working. Her big unlock was realizing that to scale, to really scale, and this is, you know, billions of turnover company, that she would have to hire people who weren't like her, and she just has to, like, get over that fact and make it work. And the second thing was the why, why, why. Even when you know the answer, even when you really want them to run things a certain way, you have objectives and the way that you manage executives to meet those objectives is by asking them put together a plan and then dig in through like true curiosity of why versus let's. So let's now shift a little bit into Rider, the current phase of your life, uh, your baby. Talk to us a little bit about, firstly, of course, what is it that Rider does, but also give us the backstory on what is the challenge that clients are facing? What is it that Rider is doing for them? And when and how did you decide to set up Rider, right? Like what was your sort of founding inspirational moment, if there was one, or maybe it was a series of moments. So talk to us a little bit about that. So we are a full stack generative AI platform. And what we mean by full stack is we are both the underlying foundation models and tooling and the ability to build applications on top of that tooling um, that are really hyper-specific to a company's use cases. So we work with really large enterprises, Intuit, Spotify, United Healthcare, Accenture, um, to really help them harness the power of generative AI cross-functionally from legal, finance, and HR to marketing product and IT. And we are a NLP company almost as much as we are an LLM company. And that, that has everything to do with the origin. My co-founder and I have been in NLP uh, and ML for almost a decade. Our first business uh, was in the machine translation and localization space. And so we've been using encoder decoders and transformers, the underlying technology that is, is behind LLMs, since 2017, 2018. But we were able to marry that with this bird's eye view that we had of content operations across every function of a business. Because when you are a company now going into Japan or France or Germany or wherever, you are taking this cross-section of your entire product experience into that new market. And so all of the skeletons start coming out. And so our big insight was, could we create a operating system for writing that created a lot more consistency end-to-end? -end? Our pitch for writer was, a writing operating system uh, for your business. Writing is the last unstructured business process. 
and we're going to structure the shit out of it. Um, and that's how we got started in 2020 and really came out of, right, those insights of we could use transformers to really translate, so to speak, you know, off-brand content to on-brand content, non-compliant content to a compliant, inconsistent to consistent, and really leapfrog, right, like a lot of just the manual work that, that was happening. And so what's great about that is, you know, fast forward three years and everything that we can do from a generative perspective is now very much the topic of a, you know, mainstream conversation. And so the the executive insight and excitement, right, into content processes is now just like completely unprecedented. You get to be there. Yeah, through the roof. The LLMs, as we've expanded on them, especially, I mean, we we build a semantic graph layer as well. It's a product called, it's a, a set of features called Knowledge Graph that plug in on top of the LLM. And so the ability for us to go from generative use cases to research and analysis use cases, right, as we walk through an organization is quite profound. Let's shift now to a bit more personal about you. Let's talk about, you've had such a powerhouse journey what is the role of support networks for you? Who does that? Who's in your support network? And what does that mean to you? So support network, um, it's honestly like a dozen people, <laughs> truly. And I just don't want to like sugarcoat anything to anybody who thinks this is easy. My husband's amazing. My mother is amazing. My sisters help. My brother-in-law helps. Our nanny lives with us. We have a weekend nanny. Um, I don't cook clean, do anything other than like work and hang out with my kids. <laughs> it's good to be open about it, right? Because again, there's a lot of illusions that are floating out there about the do it all super women. And I think it's important to bust that myth, right? This is the myth busting show. And that's just like staying alive ecosystem, <laughs> right? Then there's the thriving ecosystem, truly. And, and I really think that too many women are in survival mode. I think it is really hard to be creative, inspiring, groundbreaking if you are in survival mode. And especially, I mean, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old and like that plus writer means I need to work out, I need to eat well, I need to like clear my head, I need to walk, I need to see girlfriends, I need a coach. Like there's so much that you gotta do to be able to like show up on Monday and like actually lead a team. Do you think there is enough awareness of all of what is going behind to actually create what it takes to basically have successful women in exec roles. I mean, clearly we've seen, if you broaden the scope a little bit beyond AI, we clearly have seen more successful women in executive roles. But is there, what do you think about the awareness of what it takes to get to that point and then maintain it and perform at that point? On the one hand, I hate the privatization of all of this. Like the government should be stepping up to do a lot more with regard to like high quality childcare from literally birth. And I think the economics of it are what I don't think are really discussed, which is your paycheck will be par for a decade as you basically have three full-time people helping you do your home job. <laughs> That's right. right. That's right. But 
you're investing in a career that is going to have outsized financial return, right? Like the men have. And so over the course of a multiple decade working career, and, and like, of course, there, are, and it's not just about the money, right? Like there's fulfillment and impact and like emotional benefits. And, and identity. You know, community identity. Yeah. There's so many, so much upside to, you know, having the the luxury of the time to invest in your career that is worth what it costs. Like the number of people, even in my generation, who went to amazing schools who are saying, you know, I'm just going to, just a few years, you know, going to do something with, you know, and that's the hardest job in the world, by the way, being like a full-time parent. But I'm going to do this full-time because I just can't figure out like how to make it all work. Like you leave for a month, you get eaten alive. Like, it's it's nuts, right? Like friends who have left for just three or four years now on the mommy track, like it's depressing. And we're not going to change it like overnight, right? And not leaving has been the biggest way that my group of professional friends who have tried to balance it all, that's how they squared the circle. And I know it's not popular to say, do as short as a mat leave as you can get away with. You're not allowed to say that. So... Just as you close out here, now you don't formally mentor, but you never say no to women who ask you for help, uh, no matter whoever they are. And I just want to dig one minute into why this is important to you, what this means for you personally. I get wonderful emails from folks. And when they're heartfelt and really like on point where they need help and what advice I get on the phone, I forward it to someone who can help more. You know, I really do my best. And we we have so many people at Writer who got hired that way, actually. No one has the same story at Writer. It's an incredibly diverse team. 60% plus of our team are underrepresented minorities in tech, whether that be gender, ethnicity, um, socioeconomic, LGBTQ, like very, very proud that across IC2 leaders, we have a very diverse team. Um, And I think that comes from, you know, me and my co-founder's stories and just really having like non-traditional paths, you know, and I think I really recognize that in other people and really urge folks to email people that they admire. Like, there's literally not an email I don't at least read the headline in the first, the subject line in the first line. And that's most CEOs. Like, most CEOs read everything they get in their inbox about three milliseconds after it hits it. That's the truth. There are a billion factors that go into whether you respond. (laughs) That's awesome. So, as we wrap it up, I want you to reflect on your life, your movements at work, at home, and tell us one moment when you felt you had it all together when you were in your element, the element that makes you uniquely May. I think I'm going to cheat, Suchi, and say two moments. I feel most in my element when I am in our like couch conference room at the office um, with members of our team and we have no agenda where we are like in there to micro-align, to ideate, to connect, to dream together. And then I think I feel most in my element when I am just playing with my kids, reading to my kids. As long as I'm not like changing diapers or like, you know, <laughs> making food, <laughs> I, I, I am very at home being with the kids. I love that.
that was my conversation with May. Corin, what did you think listening to that? I mean, it's so like wonderful to hear that rawness, that edge of like just claiming to say, hey ladies, this shit is hard. I think hearing sort of her go on about her support systems and all that she has in place to sort of keep that balance in her life, that just brought back to me sort of in my journey, how I have had those hard questions asked to me when I've been put on cases or even at different clients or in different roles. Managing director says to me, what are your support systems at home? I really would get choked up about it because my husband's job is also extremely demanding. And so I would have to sort of admit, well, it's it's kind of me. And yes, I have daycare and I have nannies and I have support but sometimes kids get sick or things are out of your control and it is on me. So that was what stood out to me. But Suchi, what stands out for you the most in that conversation? So she made a number of comments about her growth. If you just come back to how she's been a CEO for a decade and when she unpacked what that meant and how she could be successful at it, some of the things were about navigating these transitions to go from an individual contributor to being a team leader and to do so effectively. And that's a transition that many of us, irrespective of whether we're women or not, struggle with. And she had some really great insights there about how so much of that transition was about letting go of the control. You know, when you're in charge of some outcome, some deliverable all by yourself and you can obsess over every piece of it to now you have a team and what techniques would you use to get them to arrive at a similar high quality deliverable. And it involves not telling them what to do, but really asking the right questions to make them think a certain way and then guide them or have them arrive at that right answer. Well, that's all for today. This has been In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. Join us every episode to hear meaningful conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.